Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you've allowed us to be here tonight. We thank you for your presence. You've blessed us. Oh, Lord, it was beautiful to hear the kids sing. Thank you for that. We've heard other beautiful music tonight. We've heard your word read. We've heard reports of what you're doing in the field. We're encouraged. We know there is a God in heaven. We know he loves us. And we know that you are present tonight. So speak and be heard. We pray. We thank you. In Jesus' name, say with me, please. Amen. Amen. He went to Arizona State University on a football scholarship. Seemed like he knew his way around a football field. In his junior year, ASU went undefeated and made it to the Rose Bowl. 1998, he was the 226th player taken in the NFL draft. That's a long way from number one. But it's a whole lot closer than you or I got to being taken in the draft. I think it's pretty good. I think he was quite happy to be picked up by the Arizona Cardinals. He had gone to school, really, as it were, in the shadow of the Cardinals stadium. And in the year 2002, he turned down a deal. A deal that would have seen him paid $1.2 million a year. Now, in football terms, $1.2 million a year is not a vast sum. But I think in the terms that most of us deal with, $1.2 million is a pretty handy chunk of change. 16 weeks of competition, maybe the playoffs. He signed with Arizona, so he didn't have that to worry about. He had to be fit. It's not just 16 weeks a year, of course. It's a year-round job, but you get my point. $1.2 million to chase a football or to chase a guy around a football team. That's all right. Why would you turn that down? Did he get a better offer? Well, he thought he did. He turned down $3.6 million over three years so he could enlist in the United States Army. He and his brother Kevin completed basic training together. Kevin turned down the chance to play professional baseball. He'd been signed by the Cleveland Indians. So both brothers participated in Operation Iraqi Freedom in September of 2003. And then our friend entered Ranger School in Fort Benning, Georgia. That's for the elite. He was elite. The former football player was redeployed to Afghanistan. And in April of 2004, he was caught in an hostile encounter with the enemy. And he lost his life. Wearing our uniform, serving under our flag, he lost his life. After he was buried more details began to emerge. And after, interestingly, official reports to the contrary, it was revealed that Pat Tillman died as a result of what we call friendly fire. He was accidentally killed by one of his fellow soldiers. Of course, such occurrences are not entirely rare. And that's because in the intensity of war, in the literal heat of battle, you can imagine what it's like. In the midst of smoke and noise and dust and bullets and confusion, these things are to all intents and purposes unavoidable. It's tragic, but it's going to happen. Friendly fire. That word friendly doesn't connote death, does it? 
It doesn't communicate the concepts of tragedy and heroism and pain and desperation. When you are serving your country, things are not supposed to end that way. It seems to me that a maelstrom of thoughts begins to swirl around inside your mind, demanding that you reconcile this concept, this confused notion, this contradiction in terms. Friendly fire, so benign to the ear, so deadly in reality. Friendly fire. As a result of this friendly fire, Pat Tillman and too many others like him are gone. Women are widowed and children are left fatherless. Friendly fire is, after you have analyzed it, still fire. Fire burns. When you want it to do so, that's a good thing. When you don't, it really isn't a good thing at all. In the Bible, there's a lot of fire. A lot. And I'd like to consider with you a passage dealing with fire that we find in the gospel of Dr. Luke, Luke chapter 9. So would you turn with me in your Bible to Luke and the ninth chapter? A lot of fire in Luke chapter 9. Jesus told the disciples as straight as he knew how. That he was going down to Jerusalem to die. Slain is the word my Bible uses. They didn't understand it. Makes you wonder how many things we think we understand clearly that we really don't. Makes you wonder. Jesus told them repeatedly, I'm going up there, they'll kill me. I'm going up there, they'll put me to death. I'm going up there, I will die. And each time he said that, they looked at each other with confusion and said, well, what do you think he means by that? So it reminds me, I think, that we ought to approach the Bible with a modicum of humility. Oh, I don't mean the things that we've really nailed down. I don't mean fundamental positions. I don't mean that. But maybe there are some things that you think you know about the Bible that, I don't know, we ought to be a little cautious about. Just wondering, just putting that out there for you. They didn't understand, they couldn't understand how their Jesus, the Messiah, no less, could possibly be executed. They hadn't been reading their Bibles very carefully. It's in Luke chapter 9. In the same passage, Jesus communicates with his followers that it's important that they lose their lives. Yes, he did say that those who lose their lives will, in losing their lives, also save their lives. He said that, but this was a curveball for the likes of Thomas and Bartholomew and Andrew. They wondered about this. They weren't in it to lose anything. They were following this Jesus because he'd boot the Romans out, make them all wealthy and prosperous and that they'd be the conquerors and not the conquered. Remember, Israel was an occupied territory at the time. And the Romans were not loved. And they were excited that they had teamed up with the right man who would restore things in just the right way. After the glory of the mountain of transfiguration, nine of the disciples were freshly confronted by a man with a demon-possessed son. You see, none of them were able to cast the demon out of this boy. They were under fire. And perhaps they were even slightly humiliated when Jesus came by, cast out 
the demon from the boy, freeing him from their, his distress, then calling them faithless and perverse. That had have been a challenge because they thought that they were all that. Evidently, they were not. Then they argued among themselves, which one among us should be called the greatest? None of them were willing to take a back seat. They all hoped that the greatest would be them. They were firing at each other. Imagine if you were one of those disciples that we don't read much about in the Bible, and then there was talk about who would be the greatest. You'd start thinking about James and John and Peter because they were closest to Jesus. They, after all, were the inner circle types who went up to the mountain of transfiguration with him. Went over here to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, which of course was after this time. But there, I think, was something of a pecking order among these ones. And so, when there was a discussion about who was going to be the greatest, those that we don't know so much about didn't figure it would be them. They figured it would be others. This caused resentment. That wasn't good. This was fire. And some of those bullets undoubtedly found their targets. Feelings were wounded. And then John, one of the appropriately named Sons of Thunder. Now, you know John was one of the good guys as we think about him. But what was going on in John's life with John's character that Jesus didn't call him son of the gentle breeze. He didn't refer to him as a son of kindness, a son of thunder. What was this brother really all about? John, one of the sons of thunder, reported to Jesus that there was a group over yonder who had been casting out devils. And they were not pleased. John was not pleased. You'd have thought he would have been delighted. I cannot think of a better thing to do with a demon than cast the demon out. Oh no, don't do that, John said. You can't do that. Think about what he was imploring. He was saying, hey you, Leave that person demon-possessed. It would be like going to a doctor. Doctor, don't treat that cancer patient. Doctor, don't write that prescription for an antibiotic. Oh no, leave that one sick. Broken leg, leave it as it is, doc. This is what John was saying. Here was somebody doing the work of God. John said, I don't like the cut of your jib. You must not do that. Oh no. John was not happy. Because the caster outer wasn't casting out the devils in the name of Jesus. So John and others, and the Bible does not specify who these others were. John and others forbade the man. Stop doing this good work. Imagine if you were the man doing what you felt like God had called you to do. We don't know who he was or what had motivated him or what his education had been like. But there he was, a gentleman was in great distress. This fellow said, I can help. He's demon-possessed. We shall get the demons. What? You don't want me to do that? Why not? It must have been tremendously confu confusing. This was partisan politics of the worst kind. John believed that he was a member of the Jesus Party. And if you weren't a member of the Jesus Party then you had no business doing this kind of stuff that only members of the Jesus party could do. You must stop. We forbade him. We told him that you can't do this anymore. Why would you do that? Because he isn't one of us. All right. These guys were on the same team. Evidently, somebody forgot to tell John. He's not on our side. He thinks like we think. He has the same aims that we have. Yes, he does. He's against what we are against. 
but he's not one of us. So we got all over that guy. We told him as plainly as we could, you need to stop that. Stop doing that good work. Stop helping people. Stop casting out demons because you're not one of us. Imagine. Jesus realized he needed to straighten these brothers out. And he said, don't stop him. Forbid him not. For he that is not against us is for us. Imagine being Jesus and knowing that in just months you were going to die and leave the future of the Christian church to these misfits. Imagine that. They were so dysfunctional. And yet Jesus was fixing to leave the earth and leave the church in their hands. You know, just a thought that I will leave with you and you'll follow this thread on the way through. If you had been an impartial observer watching how things went among Jesus' followers, you might have thought that they would have been the last people you ought to have anything to do with. You might have thought if the church is going to be left to them, that would be a terrible, terrible decision. There's no way this church could possibly prosper. You would more than likely, quite possibly, that's a better way to put it, arrive at the conclusion that that church is not a church that you need to be a part of. After all, it's being run by dysfunctional people like John, who's not even happy to see somebody having a devil cast out of them. Don't make any sense. But it gets better. What did I say we were? Luke. Luke chapter 9. We're going to pick it up in verse what? Would you say that again, brother? You got it. Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, where the Bible says, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he, Jesus, steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. I'm going to stop off along the way. They saw a light on. They said, somebody has left a light on for us. We shall stay. You know that Jews hated the Samaritans. Samaritans hated the Jews. They would often go miles out of their way while traveling just so they didn't have to pass through each other's territory. This was real hatred. This was racism. It was really all it was. And so they come to this village, and I'm not quite certain what they were expecting. It was a Samaritan village. They were Jews. Jesus was evidently, or let me put it this way, it was evident that Jesus was going to Jerusalem. And so, no surprise to me or you or them, they did not receive him. Why? Because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Well, the sons of thunder knew what to do. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, now listen, they said, Lord. Now understand, what they are about to say is an intercessory prayer. Isn't it? It's what it is. They are talking to Jesus. That's prayer. They are talking to him about somebody else and about how that somebody else ought to be treated. That's intercession. This is an intercessory prayer. Lord, they said, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? 
just as Elijah did. Now, you've got that little thing there, just as Elijah did, except that Elijah was a prophet of God who did what he did as, he, as the Spirit of God moved upon him. So Elijah didn't just say to himself, wow, i got a great idea. I think we'll fry these guys. Elijah didn't do that. Elijah responded to the moving of the Holy Spirit. And while that was some severe treatment, it was not unjust. It was called on by God for very specific and very important reasons. And ultimately, it achieved the desired result. So these brothers believed it would be the right thing for them to do to call fire down from heaven and burn people alive. I get to think that through. I don't know when, a year, two years ago, maybe it was more, maybe it was less. ISIS, it was revealed, set fire to someone or someone's. And around the world, there was shock and horror. Rightly so, I would say. We said, how could these barbarians be allowed to live on the earth? How can anybody be so full of malice and hate that they could do that? Oh my goodness, these dogs aren't even human. Oh my goodness. Oh my. And a brother who wrote five books of the Bible asked Jesus if he should do to the Samaritans what Isis did to some poor souls. Oh my, think about that, would you? Jesus, fortunately, rebuked them. And he said to them, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. Then Luke 9 and verse 56 he says, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to do what? And so they went off to another village. Now this was real fire. Real fire. Earlier this year, I stood on a very spot where in Oxford, England, martyrs, Protestants were burned at the stake. And you think about that, you go, oh my goodness, people used to come out to watch this stuff. And it was, a, it, was a, it was an accepted method of dealing with people who were seen to be outside of, whether it was the mainstream of society or outside the law. So, oh my goodness, what kind of sick mind would concoct that sort of thing? Who would come out to watch this as though it was entertainment? Wouldn't that scar you? You'd have to keep your children away. You wouldn't want your children to even hear about this, lest it warp them somehow. And the disciple whom Jesus loved petitioned Jesus to rain fire down from heaven and incinerate a village full of people simply because they didn't see things in the same way. Samaritans didn't like the idea of Jesus going to Jerusalem. They were prepared to shun every blessing Jesus would have offered them simply because of their bigotry, their hatred, their prejudice, their racism. They wouldn't have anything to do with Jesus. Don't bring that kind around here. We don't want them. And Jesus' followers didn't like that. The disciples understood something of the magnitude of the insult that these ungrateful Samaritans were indulging. Remember, not long before they had seen, some of them at least, Jesus transfigured. He was there on the mountaintop clothed in the glory of God, joined by Moses and Elijah. Man, we know who this guy is. This is the, this is the Messiah. We, we, we've seen some amazing things. We've, we've watched his miracles. He has raised the dead. He has healed the sick. He's opened the eyes of the blind. We'll fix these ungrateful dogs. How can they say no to Jesus? Mount Carmel was not far away from where they were. And so they were cognizant of the work of Elijah. More than that, it was, it was on their mind because that famous mountain was just over there. Elijah had called fire down from heaven on the top of 
Mount Carmel. Elijah had slain prophets there at Mount Carmel. And so they sought to elevate themselves to a lofty position. What position was that? James and John were simply acting as defenders of the faith. And in defending the faith, they were prepared to kill a village full of people in some very hideous terms. Wilt thou, do you want that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias or Elijah did. You know, you don't make that kind of suggestion unless you're somewhat confident that your suggestion is going to be entertained. So here they were expecting a pat on the head. Oh, good boys. Yes, let's do that. Watch this. I shall kill them. Imagine. So one would expect that there was a little bit of surprise in their minds when Jesus said, no. Jesus had alternative measures for dealing with dissidents. They heard his response with some difficulty. You know not what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man has come not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. These men, James and John. John wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the Gospel of John, and Revelation. This is the one who wrote about the sacrifice of Christ in sublime terms. Who wrote about the one who was king of kings and lord of lords. He wrote about the amen and the faithful and the true witness. He wrote about the lamb. He quoted John when he wrote him down. Behold the lamb of God. The lamb of God. And he petitioned this lamb to call fire down from heaven and fry folks who saw things a different way. The very ones who should have been manifesting the grace of God. John's name means God is gracious. Seems like he felt as though God was occasionally gracious. Or gracious only under certain circumstances. God is gracious. Instead of manifesting the grace of God, they were leading the charge to kill the opposition. You know that we are living in a very uncivil age. Rage is all the rage. In society, we just don't disagree well anymore. A carnival played out last year that we called an election. It was insult after insult and ridicule after ridicule. That's just what it was not helped by a news media, which no longer is the news media, it is the opinion media. That's not a political statement, it's just a fact. I cannot tell you of a single news entity that doesn't come with an agenda front and center. Maybe one exists, but if so, I don't know about it. Things are very skewed, very very bitter uh, in society today. One would think that we as humanity would be working together for a better future. But I'm working together for a better future. You, by not agreeing with me, are simply ruining the whole world. And we would be better off without you. But that's society as a whole. Let's bring a little bit closer to home. And talk about the church. We can hear the rain. It's okay. There's somebody with his hand on a volume switch back there. And so I'm going to compete with the rain. Best of my ability. It's highly possible, maybe even likely, that you know James and John. They might even be on your church board. It's possible. They might be on the church school board. 
Certainly, saints of God will appeal to extenuating circumstances. They will appeal to the necessity and the justice of defending the faith or, or and I like this one, standing for truth. We must, whatever it takes, we must stand for righteousness, even if it causes us to be unrighteous. We must stand for principle, for justice, for equity. All too often, James and John enter the picture even at church, and their solution to the challenges we face is to call down fire from God out of heaven upon those who disagree with their particular persuasion. Disciples they are. They're disciples, all right, as long as the ball bounces in their direction. You see, that friend isn't discipleship. A disciple is a disciple always. And far too often it creeps into our experience, even in church, that kind of intolerance that just doesn't deal well with people who see things differently from us. I'm not sure that that's especially helpful, particularly as we know that tests of our discipleship are going to come. Always. They will. They must. When somebody rubs your fur the wrong way, what are you then? It's easy to be a disciple of Christ when everything's going right, when everybody agrees with you, when everything is going your way. But when that's not the case, what type of a disciple are you then? You see, Jesus said some rather interesting things. In John chapter 13, verse 34, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's what he said. And then he said in verse 35, and this was read so beautifully as our scripture reading, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that ye have what? Love one for another. Now, that does not mean love for those who disagree with you, but love for all people at all times under all circumstances. You see, if you think that Christianity is about what you believe, you're missing the point. It has a lot to do with what you believe. But anybody can believe anything without experiencing a change of heart. Where push comes to shove where the rubber meets the road, where right in your own cliche there really takes place, is when somebody cuts across your bow in such a way as to leave you feeling disquieted. When someone disagrees with you, when somebody wrongs you, when somebody sins against you, what are you then? When somebody uh, 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 treats the truth or the Bible in a way that you can't possibly agree with and you don't think is right. We defend the faith far too often like this. And we will say we're standing up for Jesus while we unload every bullet we can possibly lay our hands on indiscriminately, not stopping to think that we will leave wounded people on the battlefield, some dying, others dead and unable to recover from our attacks. The Bible is clear. The world will know what you are made of by how you manifest or fail to manifest love for others. I've been observing for a number of years that we, even we as a people, don't typically disagree very well. Every hill is a potential hill to die on, usually a hill that you must die on and not me. We have mastered the art of distracting ourselves with things of little or no importance, believing that at that moment, mission is not the most important thing we could be engaged in. It is always. Paul wrote to the Galatians about those who bite and devour each other, and he wrote that in the context of walking in the flesh and not walking in the spirit. Now, this does not mean that we cannot disagree we must disagree at times, but we must not ever be disagreeable. 
just not necessary. If you can't coexist with somebody who sees things differently from you now, how are you going to be when the world is arrayed against you in a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation? How then? There was a fellow who for three years followed Jesus around at close quarters. He was a thief. He was a liar. He would betray Jesus to his death. And the night before he did that, Jesus washed his feet. And then when he appeared uh, creeping up out of the darkness, Jesus greeted him by calling Judas what? Friend. Imagine that. And imagine a church in which people were our friends and not our enemies, even if they were our enemies. There was a demon-possessed woman in Acts chapter 16, and she followed Paul and Silas around. These men are the servants of the Most High God, which would not be a terrible thing to say, but she was making a nuisance of herself. The Bible says that this happened for many days, and that Paul was grieved, grieved. you got to love the language. He was grieved. That's just a nice way of saying he was really ticked off. And ultimately, he decided this has got to stop, and he turned to the woman. You can read it in Acts 16. He turned to the woman, and he said to the spirit, come out of her. Now, what would you turn to that woman? Will you just give me a break? Lady, leave me alone. Somebody drag her away. Isn't there someone around here who can lock her up? But Paul knew that his fight wasn't with the woman. She was just some poor sinner who'd been overtaken by the devil. Why not have compassion? He turned and he spoke to the demon. He didn't speak to her. You know why? Because Paul was concerned with redemption. Redemption. The woman was lost. She was filled up with the spirit of the devil. And yet Paul looked at her and thought, that woman could be saved. That woman could be my sister in Christ. That woman might live next door to me in heaven one day. I want that to be the case. And so he did what he could to build her up and not drag her down. God wants us to help people up, not help them out. Help them up. Every soul you encounter is a candidate for the kingdom, no matter how they look, how they smell, no matter what they doing in their personal life. Now listen, I say this, being the first to admit, I believe that in our churches, there is a tremendous amount of tolerance. I really believe that. I remember holding an evangelistic series in a church, there was some dumb kid, his hair was blue one day, green the next. He was just doing it to get a rise out of the old ladies who came to church. And the funniest thing was, they'd come to church and they'd say, oh, hello, Gavin, blue today. Oh, we preferred the green. Have a good evening. And they'd trot off. The next day it'd be purple. Oh, purple, that's better than it was, Gavin. Oh, that's very nice. They weren't intolerant. I happen to think that Seventh-day Adventists are some of the most tolerant people in the world. I really believe that. I've been in churches where there are people who's, who's, who's how do we say, uh, who have chosen to live alternative lifestyles. And it's very obvious. And what did the saints do? Instead of having a board meeting and saying, we need to ban this person, Tell this person not to come back. They know better. This woman was raised in the church. How could she do this? They had a better approach. They just loved her. And a few years later, they baptized her. After they baptized her former girlfriend. Praise the Lord. This is what I see God's people do. Funniest thing. Well, you might not think it's funny. That might not even be the right phrase to use. Maybe go into a church one day. It was a, very, it was a very conservative church. A number of elderly folks who were very, very proper, you know, about the way they did business. And I looked over and I thought, well, that lady's tall. And I walked over and I, and I, and I reached out my hand and said, hi. And, and she said, hi. And I said, that's a, that's a really big hand for a lady. So I was looking down. And I thought, wow, she has extraordinarily big feet too. And then it dawned on me. Oh, all right. Well, how are you doing? Great. Oh, yeah. Well, how long have you been coming to church here? Oh, it's been a few years now. No one wanted to run her off, him off, her off. 
No one, no one said, be careful what bathroom you use. None of the old ladies were scandalized. See, this is what I see, generally speaking, in church. And I'm proud of my church because we tend to be kind and thoughtful and welcoming and accepting. We don't always have to lower the boom and read the riot act to people. Folks know what we believe. It's pretty clear. But far too often, that kind of forbearance and kindness and thoughtfulness just goes out the window. And we can't agree whether it's on the church board or in the parking lot or worse, in our homes where we associate. This can't be right. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said uh, in, in, is it Matthew? Was it chapter five? I believe it was. He encouraged us to forgive other people. And then he said, if you don't, your heavenly father isn't going to forgive you. So you can have somebody who's right about tithing and the way they dress and eat and what day they worship on and have their, all their, little, their doctrines all lined up. But manifest unforgiveness to another human being, that person will be outside the holy city looking in rather than inside the holy city looking out. Because the heart was not right. They'd rather call fire down from heaven upon somebody than figure out how to get along. Figure out how to preserve unity. I'm glad we prayed for unity tonight. Figure out how to preserve the integrity of the church. Ladies and gentlemen, it's right to be jealous for the honor of God. It's right. But we can afford to remember that God is at the head of this work. God is in control of this church. It is his. It isn't mine. It never will be. It's God's, and we can trust him with it. And as we do, there is never any reason to take out a sword and cut off somebody's ear or call fire down from heaven upon somebody because they're on a different team or they see it a different way or whatever it might be. You know the message to the church of Laodicea wasn't written just for the liberals in the church. You realize that, don't you? It wasn't written just for the conservatives in the church. It's written to everybody in the church. And Jesus spoke to everyone and said, you don't know the true state of your spiritual condition. We are all in desperate need. Before we call fire down from heaven upon people who disagree with us, it's probably good to realize that we are all sinners in need of a savior, in desperate need of the grace of God. Forbearance would go a long way. Somebody comes into the church typically dysfunction connotes or, or, or represents the idea that there's, there's a great need in a person's life, that they're lacking somewhere, somehow, in relationship to God. Why would you want to be unkind to that person? Wouldn't you want to pray for that person and plead that God will help that person, even if that person's somebody in your own home? God is still in the business of working transformation in so many lives. Second Chronicles chapter 20, Jehoshaphat says, we are in a pickle. We can't possibly win this thing. There's just no way. The enemy is greater than we are. Second Chronicles chapter 20. And he prays to God and he says, our eyes are on you. Uh, God's people, there was no way out. There was no possible way of victory. And what happened? God sent something along there. Something happened. And the enemies of God turned on each other. And they started firing indiscriminately, as it were, so that the victory was won by God's people and they didn't even need to fire a shot. Friendly fire? Whew. I guess it rises to that level. But my belief is that when God's people aren't looking to God as Jehoshaphat was doing, they turn their guns on each other and there is carnage and enormous damage. It's not always easy to get on with people that you don't agree with. But we are all in this together. Just recently, there was a sickening attack on some congressmen who were playing baseball in a park in Washington, D.C. Something remarkable happened when the news media reported 
the remarks of the Speaker of the House in a very positive light. It quoted some of the things that he said in response to that attack, and one of the things he said was this. An attack on one of us is an attack on all of us. You know, like it or not, we are all in this together. We are one church. We are one body. We have one purpose and one Savior. It is to be expected that we don't all march to the beat of a different drum. It is to be expected that we march to the beat of a different drum at least occasionally because we are just so diverse. But in our diversity, there can be unity. Now listen, don't think, don't, don't, don't listen to this and think, I wonder what he's saying. Is he trying to make a grand point about this or that or the other? No, I'm not. It should be very clear what I'm saying. Too often, God's people call fire down from heaven upon each other. It's just madness. In the words of Rodney King, can't we all just get along? If there is disunity in your local congregation, you got to be the change that turns that disunity into unity. And if you can't fix somebody else's problems, get on your knees and appeal to God and tell God that he's just got to do so. And if it doesn't happen immediately, keep on praying because it will happen sooner or later. That's what God does. We are too close to the end of time to be anything other than united. United upon the Bible. And if somebody disagrees with you, united in love because that's possible. You know what was written? This was written. And I know people are going to dicker about this. But somebody once wrote, when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, then he shall come to claim them as his own. As long as there's friendly fire, we make it hard for Jesus to save us. As long as we persist in disunity and unkindness and mean-spiritedness, as long as we persist in that, we are giving a testimony to the world that we do not believe that Jesus is the divine Son of God. He's coming back soon. He's coming back for a people. Yes, they were, they were theologically correct and orthodox, and that was good, but they allowed that theology to mold their heart and make it like the heart of Jesus. They didn't just say the right things, but they acted in the spirit of Christ and demonstrated his love to the world. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have what? Love one for another. We are committed tonight to Christ. Jesus is committed to dealing redemptively with people. Aren't you glad he deals redemptively with you? Jesus might say to all of us tonight, go thou and do likewise. He's coming back soon. And when he comes back, those in whom he dwells, those whose hearts are his, those whose character have been made new by the grace of God will experience that wonderful sensation when gravity loses its hold on the soles of their feet and they go up. And those who are wanting to call fire down from heaven upon their fellows will unfortunately be standing on the circle of the earth when fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. God wants to do a complete work in our lives and take our hearts and make them like his own. Let me pray with you tonight. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you are willing to do in our lives that which we cannot do for ourselves. If we were honest with you and honest with each other or with ourselves, We'll probably be able to think of times where we have called the fire of God down from heaven upon others. Maybe we weren't even wise enough to hear your rebuke. We believe that Jesus is coming back soon. We believe that. And he's coming back for a people in who, in whom, in who your character has been reproduced. Lord, we must be those people. What a tragedy to fail of everlasting life. Having known the truth, having taught the truth, having believed the truth, having read the Bible and all of those good books. 
but having not allowed the truth to make it down to our hearts and change us and make us like yourself. Now, we're going to stumble. Surely we are. We are thankful that we see in John, John who called fire, we see in him transformation. We're grateful. Impetuous Peter was changed. James, another of the sons of thunder, was changed. So, Father, tonight we know that by your grace we can be everything that you want us to be. So take us now and make us yours. Lord, give us the grace to think about our attitude, our actions, our treatment of each other. And might we, by your grace, see Jesus when he comes back. We want to be there together with our friends, together with our families, and together with the people that we don't like. Help us to love them and never be an impediment to their spiritual growth. Lord, let us grow in your grace. We thank you and we pray. Now, hold on a minute. Before we, before we close out, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. And I am wondering how it is with you tonight. If you are willing tonight to ask God to give you a heart of love for all, to give you grace to be kind to all. If you would like to back off from friendly fire and manifest the character of Jesus, if that's your desire, please just raise your hand. No one's watching. You don't have to opt in. You can sit on your hands if you like, but that would be sending a message to God. Are you willing to have God produce his character in you? Lift up your hand if that's your desire. Lord, see our hands and our hearts. Let people know that we are your disciples by our love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.